Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. As you know, we're tracking this war week by week, and it's early August 1901. It's also time for an exchange of letters and a proclamation or two. General Jan Smuts and his commander have broken into smaller units and are travelling from the Transvaal to the Free State and Cape Border. They're going to launch an invasion in a last-ditch attempt to entice the Afrikaner brothers living in the Cape Colony into an uprising. So far, it's failed. The Cape Afrikaners are threatened with execution should they take part in the Boer War, as the British consider the Cape their colony and all citizens therefore should support the empire. The Free State and Transvaal have also been seized by the British, but the rules of warfare still govern these two territories. That means any Boer citizen seized or taken prisoner there is accorded the protection of the rules. But it also means that the Cape Afrikaners have much more to lose if they take part in this war. Not only will they be executed for treason, but likely their property will be seized and their families lose everything. The cost of the war rose, and by this period, it was around £1.25 million a week. The British government had been borrowing money to pay for the material and men it's been pouring into South Africa, 250,000 men in all. Lord Kitchener, who is commander-in-chief in South Africa, is trying to rush the war to an end, but the bitter Rainers are refusing to stop fighting. General Christian de Wett is active in the Free State, and President Steyn has not been captured yet, although he has had two narrow escapes, as we've heard. The British were also quickly building their blockhouse system along the railway lines between Cape Town and Pretoria. They were also extending these military defensive positions along the lines to the west and east of the Transvaal. They were immediately successful, as Boer generals have attested in their personal memoirs, including de Wett's, who wrote Three Years' War and published it in 1902, at the end of the Anglo-Boer War. In it he writes, I now impressed upon my officers as forcibly as I could the importance of intercepting the communications of the enemy by blowing up their trains. A mechanical device had been thought of by which this could be done. The barrel and lock of a gun in connection with a dynamite cartridge were placed under a sleeper so that when a passing engine pressed the rail onto this machine, it exploded and the train was blown up. Thus the Boers devised one of the first ever examples of an IED, or an improvised explosive device. I mentioned these at the beginning of the series, how the war had produced a number of firsts, or at least a modern use of a new technology, and the IED here was the first of its type. It is terrible to take human lives in such a manner. Still, however fearful, it was not contrary to the rules of civilized warfare, and we were entirely within our rights in obstructing the enemy's lines of communication in this manner. But the vet was a man of honour and he must have felt discomfort in the idea that it was not a direct attack. It was indirect. It was a tactic we've come to know and fear as conventional soldiers in the world today. The carnage that has been sown by IEDs and its more extreme cousin, the suicide bomber, is so established in guerrilla armies now it's more usually found in training manuals than a knowledge of mine laying or grenade use. There was a clearly defined strategy by the Boers here. By placing the explosives along the tracks, the British were forced to send tens of thousands of troops and place them in positions along the railway lines, both inside the blockhouses and in patrols. The railway line was more than 1,400 kilometres long, so if you do some basic maths, place the blockhouses every mile or two apart, perhaps as far as 5 kilometres apart in places, and each has between 7 and 20 men located within, things start to get very expensive to maintain. Despite some Boer protestations, they did work. Boer mobility was restricted. 
At the same time, these protective barriers did not always lead to perfect safety, and because of this, the trains hardly ever ran at night. After a few months of successful IED use, there was an inevitable arms race. The English had figured out how to combat these devices in some places. The English soon discovered how we arranged these explosions, and the guards carefully inspected the lines each day to find out if one of these machines had been placed beneath the rails. Some nights, De Wett and his men would place their IED. The next day, gather on a copy hidden from view, only to see the train roll right over their device and continue on its way. They'd been removed. This, however, only made us more careful, he says. Upon seeing a train roll through such a spot, they decided to try it again. We went to the spot which we had fixed upon for the explosion, hollowed out the gravel, placed the machine under the sleeper, and covered it up again, throwing the gravel that was left a good distance from the line. The next day, the train detonated their IED. The Boer commanders became more active in August 1901. They were chipping away constantly at the British resolve to keep fighting. But their own position was alarmingly critical. Provisions were hard to come by. And by now they were fighting using the British arms and ammunition. They had stopped using their trusty Mauses and exchanged these for the Lee Metford. It was now that De Wett discovered that most of his documents and papers from the beginning of the war had gone missing. He gave them to a trustworthy friend, as he calls him, with instructions to bury these, but his friend was taken prisoner and De Wett could not find out where he'd been shipped. This frustrated the Boer general. These documents are of great value and ought to be published, he said after the war. They continued to be listed as missing. So it was then that General Christian de Wett and a commando of a few hundred men found themselves in the farm at Bladeskop, happiness which lay between Heilbronn and Bethlehem in the east of the Free State in early August. And it was here that they received a letter from Lord Kitchener, their arch enemy. General Knox, Elliot and Paget were searching for the Free State Commander along with Colonel Remington, Bing and Baker, amongst others. Enclosed with the letter was a signed proclamation from Kitchener. As I outlined last week, the British had been considering what action to take now that war was in its final phase and Kitchener had a few radical proposals. Why not? He had sent in a telegram to the war office, forced the entire Boer population out of the country and send them somewhere else. As we'll see at the end of this podcast, he was not alone. The leaders who continued fighting the British from now on would be captured and then sent away in exile for eternity. Away from their beloved felt, the African landscape to be exiled like Napoleon forever. Kitchener laid out his new plan clearly for the Boer generals to see in his proclamation signed 7 August 1901. Devet sitting on the farm Bladescup opened the proclamation. And whereas His Majesty's forces have now been for some considerable time in full possession of the government seats of both the above-mentioned territories, the Transvaal and Free State, with their public offices and means of administration, as well as the principal towns and the whole railway, Kitchener wrote, and whereas the great majority of burghers of the two late republics which numbered 35,000 over and above those who have been killed in the war, are now prisoners of war. He was rubbing in the poor position, Tibet and the other generals found themselves. They were fighting in a countryside that had no capital, where the centres of civilization were now controlled by the British. He was cajoling them into giving up as civilised men. 
And whereas the burghers of the late republics, now under arms against His Majesty's forces, are not only few in number, but have also lost nearly all their guns, and are without proper military organization, and are therefore not in a position to carry on a regular war. Kitchener stressed how the usual rules were therefore not really applicable, at least as he was concerned. This wasn't a proper war. This was an irregular war. And whereas the burghers who are now still under arms, although not in a position to carry on a regular war, continue to make attacks on small posts and to plunder and to destroy farms and to cut the railway and telegraph lines. Kitchener again makes the point that these men are bandits. The problem with Kitchener's comment was that the farms were indeed being destroyed, but it was not the Boers doing it. The British, as we know, were conducting a scorched earth policy. But the British believed it was a righteous one. After all, the Boers were hiding and refusing to fight properly and using the farms to replenish their commandos. So it was the Boers' own fault that the British were burning their farms. And whereas the country is thus kept in a state of unrest and the carrying on of agriculture and industries is hindered, and the war was costing the British a great deal of money, and they wanted the local industries to restart in order to begin the process of repaying part of the British debt. And whereas His Majesty's government has decided to make an end of a situation which involves unnecessary bloodshed and devastation, it is only just that steps should be taken against those who still resist, warned Kitchener, who then came to the nub of the proclamation. These steps, said Kitchener, would be instituted principally against those persons who are in authority and who are responsible for the continuance of the present state of disorganization in the country. Lord Kitchener, hero of the Sudan, was growing increasingly exasperated by the lack of organization. So, with a flourish, he announced, I, Horatio Herbert Baron Kitchener, of Khartoum, GCB, KCMG, General Commander-in-Chief of His Majesty's Forces in South Africa, High Commissioner in South Africa, on behalf of His Majesty's Government, proclaim and make known as follows. All commandants, felt-cornets and leaders of armed bands, being burghers of the late republics, still resisting His Majesty's Forces in the Orange River Colony and the Transvaal Shell, unless they surrender before the 15th of September of this year, be banished forever from South Africa, and the cost of maintaining the families of such burghers shall be recoverable from their properties. God save the king! This was a shift in strategy. Previously, the carrot approach had been adopted, where Boers who gave themselves up would not lose their property. But now Kitchener wanted what he called the bands to know that their leaders were going to pay for their continued struggle. General Devet read the proclamation on the farm happiness, and then he penned his response. Excellency, I acknowledge the receipt of your Excellency's missive, in which was enclosed your proclamation, dated 7th August 1901. I and my officers assure your Excellency that we fight with one aim only, our independence, which we can never or will never sacrifice. Devet's curt reply was duly returned to Kitchener, who probably knew that these diehards were not going to give up despite the new tough approach. Devet's officers said, Bangmark is noch nit duetmark, which roughly translates means fear is not yet death, or as Devet's translator says, nobody dies of fright. 
It was curious to see how this proclamation was taken by the burghers, de Witt writes. It had no effect whatsoever. Kitchener's ultimatum turned into a kind of test for the leaders of the commandos. Those who did not give up by the 15th of September surely were the real leaders of men, the true tough boers of the felt, who had no fear. The use of psychology in warfare is well known. The big problem for organized armies is that you cannot use the principle of ultimatum against forces that are essentially disorganized, or at least motivated by principles that do not encompass money, cash, and property. I've faced soldiers who are motivated by philosophies rather than property, and these soldiers are far more difficult to dislodge than others. Furthermore, when you threaten these men with violence, it is a test of their core being, and they tend to respond equally violently and without fear. I know of no single case where an officer, in consequence of this proclamation, surrendered, de Wetz says pointedly. President Steyn was to respond a week later with his own letter that, of course, was far longer as Steyn was a politician, after all. He reminded Kitchener about how Cecil John Rhodes had been found to have been behind the motivation by the British to start the war, how he'd funded the Jamison raid after a lengthy history peppered with legalese. Steyn took aim at Lord Kitchener's infamous concentration camps. To say of these, therefore, that they are dwelling peacefully with you is an assertion which can hardly be taken seriously. As regards those who have gone over from us to the enemy, I can only say that our experience is not unique, for history shows that in all wars for freedom, as in America and elsewhere, there were such, and we shall try to get on without them. But it was the 74,000 women and children in concentration camps that Stein was particularly angry. It appears to me that your excellency must be unaware of the cruel manner in which these defenseless ones were dragged away from their dwellings by your excellency's troops, who first destroyed all goods and property of their wretched captives. Stain was prodding a painful fact for many British soldiers who were part of the scorched earth policy. Many were questioning why they were now taking women and children prisoner and destroying the very land they were supposed to be saving. Does your excellency realize that your troops have not been ashamed to fire with guns and small arms on our helpless ones when they, to avoid capture, had taken flight? Stain told Kitchener he was indeed willing to discuss peace terms, but none that imperils the independence of the two republics, or which does not take into consideration the interests of our colonial brethren who have joined us. By now, Lord Kitchener had divided up the country into what he thought of as manageable plots intersected by blockhouses and roads and railway lines. The mobile columns swept through these blocks on maps, clearing the landscape of all livestock, burning everything that couldn't move. The blockhouses alone numbered in the many thousands, and there were eventually 60,000 troops assigned to these, with another 25,000 support infantry, usually coloured or black soldiers. And sitting in England at this time, was one of the more famous businessmen of the period who was watching the war in South Africa with a great deal of interest. His name was Hiram Maxim. It was his machine gun that had caused so many deaths already, and the 61-year-old inventor wasn't finished with his ideas yet. He was one of the last people on whom Queen Victoria bestowed a knighthood before she died in February 1901. Maxim's inventions were legendary, although he claimed he'd invented the light bulb he had actually patented and is known to have invented the mousetrap, the merry-go-round, as well as the much-feared Maxim machine gun. 
It was known as the pom-pom, which we've heard all about in this series. Every time the Boers or British heard that sound and the felt, their faces would go pale in fear. A multiple round-firing monster that tore holes in entire companies of men every time it was fired in anger. Maxim was a businessman, though, and had sold his weapon to both the Boer and the British before the war. He was originally from America, but he had become a naturalized British citizen. Selling such a destructive weapon to the enemy of the empire, however, did not preclude him from being awarded a knighthood. Maxim was drafting a letter at this point, which we'll hear about later this month. It involved a mass deportation of the entire Boer population to Mexico because, as we'll hear, the geography is similar. He had a few other reasons for believing the Boers would be happy there, but that's for another time. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. You can also send me a message via Twitter at Des Latham or an email through our website, abwarpodcast.com. I'm very excited, by the way, to be talking to the presenters of History by Hollywood podcast in the coming week. We're going to be discussing the Breko Morant saga, so I look forward to sharing that information later this month. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar jou Transvaal, daar waar my sare woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sare mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.